Achieving a gorgeous grin from home isn't a total mystery with Byteclear aligners. Just don't be surprised if all of your sleuthing friends start asking, what's your secret? Begin by ordering your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95. Byteclear aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces. Plus, they offer flexible financing, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at That's Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot com. Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Delve into the shadows of the mind with Sleeping Dogs, a gripping murder mystery starring Academy Award winner Russell Crowe. Now available on digital. Crow portrays an ex-homicide detective, unraveling a brutal murder he can't recall. Uncovering secrets from his past, he learns a chilling truth. It's best to let sleeping dogs lie. Visit sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery to watch Sleeping Dogs, now on digital. That's sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery. CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. Welcome to the Science of Success. Introducing your host, Matt Bodner. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of The Science of Success, the number one evidence-based growth podcast on the internet with over 5 million downloads and listeners in over 100 countries. Thank you for listening. My name is Austin Fable, and today we have an incredible interview with a man named Ozan Viral. Ozan is a rocket scientist, award-winning law professor, and author. While at Cornell University, he served on the operations team for the 2003 Mars Exploration Rovers Project that sent not one, but two rovers to Mars. In this interview, we dig deep into the science of decision-making and thinking. We really dig into his incredible story and his journey. I cannot wait to share this interview with you. And then we dig into how we can question our assumptions and challenge our own opinions and ultimately think like a rocket scientist. Are you a fan of the show? Head over to www.successpodcast.com and sign up for our email list today. You're going to get a ton of free goodies, including a guide as soon as you sign up. You'll get our newsletter called Mindset Monday, as well as immediate access to all of our interviews when they go live. Are you on the go right now? Not a problem. Just text SMARTER, that's S-M-A-R-T-E-R, to 44222 to get subscribed today. Without further ado, enjoy our interview with Ozan Viral. Ozan, welcome to the Science of Success. Thank you so much for having me on, Austin. Well, it's great to have you on. I really appreciate you taking the time and digging through your work. I've got to say it's an honor to have you on. Uh, you've got a very, very interesting background, and I, I'd love to start there. You know, For listeners who may not know you or be familiar with your work, share your story with us. Tell us a little about your journey and some of the past projects you've worked on, and then, of course, we'll dig into what you're working on now as well. Very excited about that. Sounds good. So I was born and raised in Istanbul, Turkey. I lived there for 17 years, grew up in a family of no English speakers, started to learn English. I think it probably would have been around 11 
And then, and I came to the United States for college. I majored in astrophysics at Cornell. And while there, I worked on the operations team for the Mars Exploration Rovers Project. And my interest in astrophysics really began when I was, I think this would have been around like five or six years old. In the apartment that I grew up in, in Istanbul, we get these really frequent blackouts, which would scare the crap out of me as <laughs> like a five-year-old. And my dad came up with this game. He would grab my soccer ball, light up a candle, and he'd rotate the soccer ball around the candle, and the candle would be representing the sun and the soccer ball, the earth. Those were my very, very first astronomy lessons, and I was hooked. So after that, I became obsessed with astronomy, you know, getting my hands on every astronomy book, every science fiction book I could find. And my dream was to eventually come to the United States to work on a space mission of some sort. And before I arrived, I think this was like a couple weeks before I got to Cornell, I was looking at what the astronomy department was up to. And I saw that one of the professors, his name is Steve Squires, was in charge of this planned mission to Mars. And there was no job listing, but I just decided, hey, I'm just gonna reach out to him and ask if I can work for him. And I had taught myself how to program in high school, so I just emailed him, attached my resume and said, I would just die to work for you. And the moment I arrived at Cornell, he invited me in for an interview and I got the job. And the rest is history. Wow. I got to work on this amazing mission that went to Mars in 2003. We had built these rovers to last for 90 days each. We sent two. Their names were Spirit and Opportunity. Spirit ended up lasting for, for six years. And I still get chills when I say this, but Opportunity rode the red planet for nearly 15 years. So wow. this was 15 years into its, its 90-day mission. So it was such an honor to work on that project and that eventually culminated in, in the book that I wrote that recently came out called Think Like a Rocket Scientist. Such an incredible background. I love everything from just kind of the imagery of your dad sort of instilling this curiosity and you using a soccer ball and a candle. And then also... One of the biggest questions we get about the show is how do you get these people to come on the show? You know, we've interviewed a lot of folks and the answer really is just we've reached out. A lot of people don't really know what they can get if they just ask. And I think that you reaching out cold, you know, there's no job description, but you saw something that you wanted to be a part of and reaching out and kind of taking the initiative to not just look at the website and say, oh, there's no job postings. Like they must not be looking for anybody. Really kind of taking the bull by the horns to use the metaphor and, and really kind of making reality out of your dreams. That's such an important point. And I do remember like writing that email and before I hit send, the voice of the inner critic showed up mm. and basically said, what are you doing? You're going to make a fool out of yourself. There is no job listing. You're not qualified. Like you're a skinny kid with a funny name from a country halfway around the world who has a really thick accent at the time, which eventually disappeared. What could you possibly contribute to this? And then I asked myself two questions, which are still two questions that I ask myself to this day whenever I'm afraid of making a leap. The first question is, what's the worst that can happen? Now, the worst that can happen in a scenario like that is I just never hear back from him, right? He just mm. ignores my email saying like, okay, this guy is a fool. He has nothing to contribute, so <laughs> I'm not going to invite him in. That is the worst that can happen. And then the second question I ask, which often we don't ask, is what's the best that can happen? Mm. What is the most optimal outcome out of the scenario? 
And it's really important to ask that question because our mind is, I'm quoting Rick Hansen here, but it's like Velcro for negative thoughts and Teflon for positive ones. When we think of worst case scenarios, those tend to get exacerbated in our heads. So it's really important to ask that second question of like, well, what's the best that can happen? And in my case, the answer to that was, I get to work on a Mars mission. <laughs> you know, I get to do this thing that I've dreamed of doing since I was five years old. And I ask myself those questions. And when the answers are in front of you, the course of action is so clear. So I clicked send and I'm so glad I did. Yeah, that's an incredible story. I think it's so relatable for a lot of people. It's funny that you quote Rick Hansen. We actually, Matt, our other host, was actually slated to interview him right now on another oh, line. Yeah, and, awesome. he, and he just rescheduled <laughs> last minute. We're going to get Rick on. He's been on the show a couple of times, but, but what a funny circumstance. I think it's awesome, too. I mean, when you look, go through the worst that can happen and you say, well, the worst that can happen is he doesn't respond. I think even in my head sometimes, like, well, the worst that could happen would be he'd forward the email to all of his colleagues. And there's a Washington Post article written about how we shouldn't call in to Cornell for random jobs. You know, I, I can go a little deeper. And, and one thing also that I've heard from numerous guests about fear setting too is when you think about that worst that can happen, going a level deeper even, if that worst thing did happen, how hard would it be for you to get back to your current state? Yep. And for you, it's like you're already there. I mean, the, you're already in that current state. So there's really no stakes, at least not in the way that you might imagine them from that inner critic. Yep, Exactly. So I want to dig into the new book. It's a great book. I recommend picking up a copy for anybody listening. It's called Think Like a Rocket Scientist, Simple Strategies You Can Use to Make Giant Leaps in Work and Life. So give us a little bit of the premise, and I want to dive into some of the meat as well. And why did you decide to write this book? I opened the book by telling the story of John F. Kennedy back in September 1962 when he steps up to the podium at Rice University Stadium and pledges to put a man on the moon and return him safely to the earth. Now, at the time, when he made that promise, people thought he was crazy. People sitting in the audience thought he was crazy, but officials at NASA thought he was out of his mind as well. So what he was promising was literally a moonshot because so many of the prerequisite required for a moon landing hadn't been developed yet. No American astronaut had worked outside of a spacecraft. Two spacecraft had never docked together in space. We knew so little about the moon. NASA didn't know if the lunar surface would be solid enough to support a lander or if the lander, if it like you landed on there, it would just cave right through. Some of the metals, Kennedy said, required to build the rockets hadn't even been invented yet. We jumped into the cosmic void and hope we'd grow wings on the way up and grow those wings we did. A child who was just six years old when the Wright brothers took their first power flight which lasted, what, all of like 10 seconds and moved like 100 feet, would have been 72 when flight became powerful enough to put a man on the moon and return him safely to the Earth. And we look at that giant leap and say, well, that's the triumph of technology, but I think that's a misleading story. It's really the triumph of the humans behind the technology and a certain thought process they used to turn the seemingly impossible into the possible. So I wanted to write a book dedicated to that thought process. And the premise of the book is, look, you don't have to be a rocket scientist to think like one. You can take these nine simple strategies from rocket science and use them to make your own giant leaps in work and life, whether it's landing your dream job, developing a new skill, 
or creating the next breakthrough product. Rocket science tends to be really intimidating, right? Hence the saying, it's rocket science or it's not rocket science. So I wanted to write a book, not about the science behind rocket science, but about these strategies that rocket scientists use to approach problems, to deal with uncertainty, to deal with failure, to deal with success, and how they use them to their own benefit. I love the premise of the book, and I think it's, it's something that's definitely needed in the world now. And it's, it's not a topic that we are unaccustomed to here on the show. I mean, building mental models and teaching yourself kind of how to think to take your life to the next level is a huge focus. So I think the book really aligns with everything that we believe in and we try to bring to our audience. It's such an interesting thought, too, that the things that these rocket scientists are trying to solve have never been solved before. Mm -hmm. So you're really, in a lot of ways... It's exciting because there's a blank slate, right? There's no traditional thinking to rely on that gives you sort of guardrails that you might fall into. But on the other hand, it can be very intimidating because you have no playbook. Again, I mean, the other side of the coin is you're really nothing's off the table, but nothing's been put on the table to begin with. Absolutely. It can be really intimidating. I mean, I remember working on this Mars mission and we picked two landing sites for the two different rovers. And we had some idea of what to expect from these landing sites because we could look at the photos of the landing sites from orbit. But once we actually landed, they turned out to be so different from what we expected. And so what we did was to learn the problems that Mars gave us uh, or try to solve the problems that Mars gave us as opposed to the problems that we expected to solve. And one of the ways we did that is sort of use the Swiss Army knife approach. We had so many different tools on board the rover that could be adapted to different uses. Mm. Now, I mentioned this example because it's particularly relevant to what's going on in the world right now. We're recording this episode around mid-May when the pandemic, the COVID-19 pandemic, is going on full force. And so if you're in a position where the pandemic has disrupted the way you run your life or you, the way you run your business, the question that we asked ourselves when we landed on Mars is also a useful question for you to ask yourself. So mm. instead of asking, okay, like, here are the problems that I expected to solve, but those problems are now off the table. How can I solve the problems that the universe threw at me? How can I use my skills, resources, products, services in a way that I haven't used them before, but that I need to use given the problems that the world needs solving at this particular point in time? Yeah, it's such a great question to ask. And I think when you even look, I mean, everyone's gotten an email about a COVID-19 response at this point from everybody and, <laughs> and their grandmother. But I think a lot of the companies that have really thrived right now have done just that. I mean, I was reading an article today about a restaurant owner whose restaurant is, you know, like, Michelin stars. It's basically considered art, very much an experience, right? But they've actually maintained their entire staff and they've actually increased profits because they were able to pivot so quickly and sort of change what they were offering their customers and even their employees to kind of make make it all sort of, we're in this together. Like for instance, they got rid of employee salaries. Everyone made $15 an hour, but anything above what they needed to cover costs was split among the staff. So it's like, how do you take these things you've got and sort of pivot what the goals were when everything was running the way that they should be, and then realign the incentives and what you're doing to match sort of the goals of the current environment. And that brings us back to the nine essential principles in the book. And I'd like to just list them out right now to give all the listeners a framework, but you have become a connoisseur of uncertainty, reason from first principles, play mind games, reach for the moon, reframe questions, 
Kill Your Intellectual Darlings, which I'm going to dig into that for sure. Uh, <laughs> test as you fly, fly as you test, do not fail fast, and be wary of unbroken success. Now, as we begin to kind of peel these layers back, one that jumps out at me is just critically important is reason from first principles. Explain what that means to us. So let me answer that with a story. And the story is of Elon Musk starting SpaceX. When he first thought about sending rockets to Mars, what he first did was to shop on the American market first and then go to the Russian market as well to purchase rockets that other people had built. And that turned out to be really, really expensive. At the time, Elon Musk was a rich guy. He had just sold PayPal to eBay. But even given his budgets, the rockets were way too expensive. He was about to give up, actually, but then he realized that his reasoning was flawed. In trying to buy rockets that other people had built, he realized that he was not reasoning from first principles. So reasoning from first principles means basically taking a complex system and boiling it down to its non-negotiable subcomponents. So you're hacking through assumptions in your life as if you're hacking through a jungle with a machete to get to the fundamental raw materials. So for Elon Musk, reasoning from first principles meant, okay, set aside rockets that other people built. What does it take to actually build a rocket and put a rocket into space? So he looked at the raw materials of a rocket, and it turned out that if you tried to buy those raw materials on the market, it would be like 2% of the typical cost of a rocket. So for him, it was a no-brainer. Using first principles, he said, all right, well, I'm just going to build my rockets from scratch myself in the factory as opposed to building rockets that other people had built. First principles also led him to question another deeply held assumption in rocket science, which is that rockets for decades couldn't be reused. So once they launched their cargo into orbit, they would plunge into the ocean or burn up in the atmosphere requiring an entirely new rocket to be built. Now imagine for a moment doing that for commercial flights, right? So I live in Portland, Oregon. I fly from Portland to Los Angeles. The passengers deplane and then someone steps up to the plane and just torches it. <laughs> That's basically what we did for rockets. And by the way, the cost of a modern rocket is about the same thing as as a Boeing 737, more or less. Wow. But commercial flight is so much cheaper because airplanes can be reused quickly over and over and over again. So Elon Musk, along with Jeff Bezos and his space company, Blue Origin, both questioned that deeply held assumption in rocket science that rockets couldn't be reused. And so now at Cape Canaveral, there is a landing pad next to a launch pad for the rocket to to land. I mean, there's still a ways to go, but both companies have refurbished and reused and sent numerous rocket stages back into space, like certified pre-owned vehicles, basically. And that's all thanks to First Principles Thinking. Such an incredible story. And it's, it's really inspiring to think what other assumptions are we all making in our lives that we really haven't questioned, but might actually yield incredible results or breakthroughs. Part of that too, is I know you've touched on the past, how you can kind of reverse engineer your own processes to find these holes mm -hmm. in your thinking. How do we go about that? Like say I've, I've kind of always gone along like Elon Musk, like I look around and I say, well, things have always been done this way. How do I start to ask the right questions of myself and my thinking to find these breakthroughs? There are a number of things you can do. One is to actually spend a day questioning your assumptions. 
So mm. look at your routines, your habits, your budget items, your processes, and ask yourself, why am I doing it this way? Can I get rid of this or replace it with something better? So one example of, of that question for my own life is, so my book came out on April 14th and I had this big book tour planned. I was gonna travel all around the United States and give talks and with the pandemic, the book tour got canceled. Mm. And so I had to step back and ask myself and reason from first principles, think like a rocket scientist and ask myself, all right, can't do a book tour anymore. What can I do instead to get the word out about the book? And that actually forced me to question whether it was a good idea to do a book tour in the first place. And if I'm being honest with myself, I was doing a book tour, not because I had reason from first principles, but because that's what I thought authors are supposed to do, right? Mm -hmm. You write a book, you go on a book tour. I was sort of copying and pasting what other authors that I admire had done before me. But if you step back and ask yourself, is it really a good use of my time for me to fly to New York City from Portland across the country, go to a Barnes and Noble and sign books for 50 people? Or is it, are there better ways for me to engage with my readers and get the word out that don't require a multi-day, multi-week commitment from me? And the answer to that is absolutely yes. So I was able to come up with creative ways of getting the word out virtually after the pandemic forced me to question the status quo in my life. But I think it's better to do this proactively as opposed to defensively by asking yourself, why am I doing what I'm doing? Can I get rid of this and replace it with, with something better? Another tactic that I use is to bring outsiders into the conversation. Hmm. So experts tend to be way too close to the problem to think differently. Don't get me wrong, expertise is really valuable. But if you're trying to achieve something transformative, you usually need input from outsiders to whatever it is you're working on. And this doesn't have to mean an expensive coach or a consultant. It can simply mean bringing in a, a friend, your significant other, or someone from a different division in your company to come in and ask yourself those like what we pejoratively call dumb questions. But they're actually not dumb at all. They go to some fundamental aspect of the problem that you're missing because you are way too close to it to be able to spot the same outdated assumptions that you've been operating under for decades, for years. And that's why, by the way, when you look at some of these gate crashers, like I mentioned two names, Elon Musk and Jeff Bezos for the aerospace industry, they're outsiders. Hmm. Elon Musk came from Silicon Valley. He learned about rocket science by reading rocket science textbooks. Jeff Bezos came from Amazon, and they're both disrupting the aerospace industry. Another example I give in the book is Reed Hastings and how he co-founded Netflix. He was an outsider to the video industry. He was a software developer before he co-founded Netflix, but he was able to spot the outdated assumptions in the video industry, the video rental industry, meaning you have to pay late fees, you have to have physical stores, and question those assumptions to build a transformative product. So powerful. And I love all of the examples there. And the, the book tour example is very interesting to me too, because you go through all the just legwork that requires to reach 50 people. Right. And then really, I mean, we find ourselves sitting here, I'm in my office, you're in yours, I'm in Nashville, you're in Oregon, and we're going to reach probably more people than you would inside of a Barnes and Noble. So it's kind of like the most impactful way forward is, is not always what's been done in the past. And I just love the lesson. 
Exactly. There's another thing too, and this must be a space thing because you've spoken about something else, which is kind of brainstorming before you make a decision, brainstorming all the reasons your idea might fail and how that can mm-hmm. help ensure long-term success. And we had a previous guest on commander, Chris Hadfield, and he said something extremely similar. He was just like, you know, before we launch a mission up to the international space station, we go through everything that could possibly go wrong. And then for him, he actually had a, a malfunction in his suit caused some glass cleaner to go into his eye and he's basically on a spacewalk floating in outer space completely blind and he kind of attributed his ability to stay calm and to get back in to to that sort of planning when you look through all the different negative possibilities how do you kind of go through all the ways the idea might fail and then ultimately what benefit does that give you when you're making your decisions so there are two exercises that I like to use. One is called the pre-mortem, which is very similar to what Chris Hatfield described on the show. And so basically what you do is you assume that the project failed. So the mission was a failure. You work backward from that to figure out the reasons why it may have failed. And so going back to my book, I might say, okay, I have to turn in this book by April 2019, I think was my deadline, or May 2019 to the publisher. I'll assume that that failed and I'll work backward from that to try to figure out why it may have failed. It may have failed because I spent too much time on the research and too little time on the writing. It may have failed because you know I didn't hire the right people. But identifying everything that can go wrong beforehand and then planning ahead for those worst case scenarios is really, really powerful. And so for those who are listening, you can apply this in your own life by saying, all right, why might my boss pass me up for a promotion, right? Why is this prospective employer justified in not hiring me? And in answering those questions, avoid answering them as you would that like dreadful interview question. Tell me about your weaknesses, (laughs) Mm -hmm. which tends to induce humble bragging, right? People say things like, I work too hard. (laughs) (laughs) I've been there before, maybe once or twice. Right, exactly. And so instead, really get into the shoes of the person who might reject your promotion or refuse to hire you and ask yourself, why might that happen? Why are they making that choice? And those questions usually tend to pinpoint you to things that are lying in your blind spots that you'll be able to figure out by going through the motions here. And you can do this at your company as well if you run a business. Doing this exercise gives your staff members some safety to come forward. So one of the things that derails success is groupthink, right? So people don't wanna be the skunk at the picnic, and so they're reluctant to raise their hands and voice dissent because they fear retribution of some sort from their supervisors or from their team members. But when you say, all right, we're gonna conduct this exercise where we assume that whatever we're working on failed, then that gives people basically safety in coming forward and saying, all right, Here's actually this weakness with this project that's been bugging me. I haven't shared it until now, but I'm going to share it right now because this is part of this exercise that we are conducting. So it can be a really, really powerful way of unearthing potential problems before you pull the trigger. Yeah, I love that. I think... It's so important too. It's kind of like a neat way to make an exercise out of allowing people to poke holes they may not feel comfortable bringing forward. And I think everybody's kind of been in that scenario scenario before where you, you know, your mind is screaming like this isn't going to work, this isn't going to work, but you don't want to be like you said the skunk at the picnic. I'm going to have to use that in the future. 
Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. I normally find bras to be so uncomfortable and constricting, but Skims has changed that. You know I love Skims underwear, so I finally tried their bras, and Skims has delivered again. Skims bras are worth the hype for the amazing shape and support they give, but what I wasn't expecting was how comfortable they are too. I've tried so many bras in the past. And the main issue that I have is that they weren't supportive enough, to the point where they felt slouchy. I love my Skims wireless form bra because it's so comfortable and supportive. The older I get, the more I care about actually being comfortable in what I wear every day. And with my wireless form bra, I no longer have to sacrifice my comfort for the support I need. Shop Skims bras at skims.com, now available in 62 sizes, 30A to 46H. Plus, get free shipping on all orders over $75. If you haven't yet, be sure to let them know we sent you. After you place your order, select podcast in the survey and select our show in the drop-down menu that follows. <laughs> Let's dig back into some of the non-essential principles. So, kill your intellectual darlings. I love the sort of aggression in that advice, but tell us what it means. So, that principle is so central to the way that, that scientists work. The scientific method basically requires you to come up with hypotheses to explain some phenomenon. And then what you do from there is to kill your intellectual darlings. You beat the crap out of your own ideas. And that's the only way that scientists can begin to develop some confidence in their hypotheses. And that, I think, is such a stark contrast to the way that we normally operate outside of the scientific world, right? We try to prove ourselves right as opposed to prove ourselves wrong. And this is particularly prevalent in politics. People don't change their minds. And when they do, they're usually accused of flip-flopping or being the kind of like person who is not suited for political office. Whereas for scientists, Changing your mind is the name of the game. That's what scientists do. If you discover facts that call into question an assumption you have, a hypothesis you had, you welcome that. Because the goal in science is to not be right, but to find what's right. Hmm. 
And I think that goal is really important outside of science as well. That's how you develop confidence in your own ideas. You don't learn anything by trying to prove yourself right, which, by the way, with biases like the confirmation bias, for example, we look for evidence and facts that confirm what we think we know, right? When you Google a search result or when you Google a question, you probably have some idea as to what to expect. And when those answers come up, you're going to click on the first link that confirms your preconceptions about that. But that means you're not learning anything new. So to be able to learn something new and grow, you should look for evidence that disconfirms, that falsifies what you think is true as opposed to the other way around. And this is becoming increasingly harder because we've been algorithmically sorted into these echo chambers, right? We friend people like us on Facebook, we follow people like us on Twitter, and when we see dissenting opinions, it's so easy to disengage from them. Just unfriend, unfollow, unsubscribe. Hmm. But that means we're also not being exposed to ideas that are different from our own. When this creates all sorts of problems, it becomes really hard to then engage with people who are on the other side of the spectrum. But it also means that your own ideas aren't being stress tested as much as they should be, nearly as much as they should be, which means you've got blind spots that you're not seeing. Yeah, many great points there. I think it's also the algorithm thing has always really, really intrigued me. I I was, I guess it was about two years ago at Thanksgiving, I was sitting around with some family members and I just realized like Facebook has ruined Thanksgiving and family holidays <laughs> because on one side you've got the members who, I mean, like, I don't want to get political here, but like Republican, Democrat, the two main sides. And then you've got people at the table in my family, you know, we've got both sides kind of represented and everyone speaks as though it's a foregone conclusion that everyone else at the table has their opinion because that's right. all they see on Facebook. So it's like, man, like everyone must be seeing these articles and it really kind of at least in my personal scenario it really unhinged a bunch of people's tongues especially after a couple of glasses of wine <laughs> that thing kind of exacerbated the situation but uh, looping back to the whole idea of killing your intellectual darling something you said really rang true to me and that is they want to change their opinions they want mm -hmm. to find what's right and it, it reminds me of carol dweck and a lot of her work on mindsets and specifically the growth mindset it's like as a scientist you shouldn't be concerned of looking right and looking like the hero and the genius and all the credits. Like what the focus really is, is finding what's true and then adopting that into what you do and move forward and how we build out the world that we live in technologically and scientifically. But it's not about credit and it's not about being afraid to flip-flop and change your opinion because of new information, which, which really strikes me as something that I think everyone, especially in today's world of, of sound bites and social media, could really, really stand to learn from. It's not about winning the argument. It's about learning more, right? Exactly. And when it becomes about winning the argument, we lose so much in the process. I mean, one of the side effects of this is of the dynamic you described at Thanksgiving table is our beliefs start to become intertwined with our identities. So if you believe in primal eating, you become paleo. If you believe in a plant-based diet, you become a vegan. If you do CrossFit, you're a CrossFitter. And when your beliefs are intertwined with your identity, it means changing your mind is tantamount to changing your identity, which is really, really difficult for people to do, which is why, by the way, simple disagreements in the modern world turn into these 
just existential death matches because so much more than our beliefs and our arguments are at stake, it is our identity that's at stake. And so one way to, to overcome that barrier is to, again, try to kill your intellectual darlings and put some separation between your identity as a person and your beliefs, right? And so scientists do that all the time. Scientists are not their opinions. They're not their hypotheses. And the moment, by the way, they wrap up their identity around the hypothesis is when they start fooling themselves. Mm-hmm. And as Richard Feynman says, the first principle is you must not fool yourself and you are the easiest person to fool. Mm-hmm. And so it, it really pays off to put some separation between you as a person, your arguments and your beliefs, and then seek disconfirming evidence. And so one of the examples I've done that with writing the book is when I finished the draft, you know, I have this support network of friends and colleagues and mentors, and I went to them to get feedback on the book. The first question I asked them was, what is wrong with the book? So tell me what needs to be cut. Tell me what needs to be taken out of the book. Tell me what parts of the book don't make sense. So I need to hear them from you now, <laughs> not a year from now when the book is is published. And that sort of questioning, inviting dissent and inviting disagreement, going back to safety and what we talked about before with the pre-mortem, gives people the freedom, if they're otherwise reluctant to share criticism with you, if, if they're more prone to sort of praising your work, that question, that affirmative stance on your part of asking, tell me what's wrong with this, will give them safety to come forward and actually share the crucial critical feedback you need to make your work much better than it was before. Yeah, I think that's such a great best practice. I feel like I've heard that before. I think Tim Ferriss does something similar to that, and he's accredited that to being one of the best tools for writing a book and making sure that it hits on the first time out. One of the other principles that you touched on, I want to be respectful of your time, and I will begin to wrap up here in a minute with a couple of kind of rapid-fire questions, but one of the the essential principles is play mind games. As a big fan of, of games in general, strategy games, video games, board games, card games, what are you talking about here? So I'm referring specifically to conducting thought experiments. So the example that opens that chapter is a 16-year-old Albert Einstein sitting and asking himself, what would it be like to ride next to a beam of light? And that question, by the way, sounds nonsensical, but he sat with that question for 10 years and the answer he came up with resulted in the special theory of relativity. We are so reluctant to pose those thought experiments, to play mind games, to set up the sorts of scenarios we set up in our heads, like fantasy worlds we set up in our heads when we were little kids. And that, I think, on the research shows, undermines creativity. When we don't pause and think and deliberate and carve off time and space in our lives for free thinking, our creativity suffers as a result. There is a section in the Play Mind Games chapter called Why You Should Get Bored More Often. Boredom, to me, a few years ago, I remember distinctly, like I was getting out of bed, I reached over to my phone to get my daily dose of notifications, and it I had an epiphany. I realized that I hadn't been bored in such a long time, because I was moving from one meeting to the next, one notification to the next, and I wasn't carving off time for boredom, which I would define as spending 
large amounts of unstructured time free of distractions. And when you don't do that, your subconscious doesn't have the ability, doesn't have the space it needs to connect different ideas in your head, to cross-pollinate what you're working on, to solve problems. The decline of boredom in my own life and research I cite in the book bears this out corresponded with also a decline in my creativity. Hmm. And so one of the things I did was to become really purposeful about carving off these spaces and time in my life to think. I have a recliner in my office and I'll sit there for 20 minutes just with every day, just with a notepad and a pen. And some of the best ideas that have occurred to me in recent memory have come up during those moments of silence. Because it's really hard to innovate. It's really hard to be creative when you're busy trying to get to inbox zero. Mm -hmm. That's not when innovation happens. Hustle and innovation are antithetical to each other. As the saying goes, it's the silence between the notes that makes the music. And there are so many examples that I cite in the book that are cited elsewhere and discussed elsewhere as well when the ideas, and I'm sure those who are listening to this, know ideas tend to come in the shower. Ideas tend to come when you're walking. Ideas tend to come when you're cooking. When you're letting your brain rest and make the type of connections that it needs to make to be able to generate breakthrough ideas. And in today's day and age, we need to be really purposeful about doing that. So I would highly recommend that people carve off time, you might call it airplane mode, for you to just sit and do nothing but think. Yeah, it's such a powerful tool and so often overlooked. But like you said, I mean, I think everyone's had that aha moment while sitting in the shower or standing in the shower, rather, hopefully. Well, great. Ozan, this has been incredible. I really appreciate the time. You've been very generous with us. I want to close with just one last question and then I want to let listeners know where they can find you. But Obviously, you know, thinking like a rocket scientist, great framework for anybody listening to the show now. Who do you think is the greatest thinker of our time? Hmm. That's a great question. There are so many role models in my life, but the first name that jumped to mind when you asked that question, Austin, was Adam Grant. And Adam's work, I mean, he is such a brilliant thinker, but he does what a lot of academics don't do, which is to take these seemingly esoteric and hard to translate academic concepts and share them with popular audiences in a way that anyone can understand. And his, if you read his books like Give and Take and Originals, the final product looks so easy and so simple and so digestible from the perspective of a popular audience, but it conceals the really, really difficult, messy work of looking at esoteric academic research and actually simplifying it. And that I think is is a really, really hard thing to do. And Adam does it brilliantly. Yeah, we love Adam. We've actually been fortunate enough to have him on the show as well. And he's just an um, incredible individual to be as young as he is and to have accomplished what he's accomplished. So Ozan, thank you so much for the time. Please let us know where we can find more. Where can we buy the book? Where can we learn more about you and your work? Where would you direct us? The best way to keep in touch with me is through my email list. I'm not active on social media. So if you'd like to sign up for my email list, you can go to weeklycontrarian.com. And the email goes out to over 21,000 people every Thursday. And it just shares one idea 
that can be read in three minutes or less that helps you, empowers you to reimagine the status quo. And that's at weeklycontrarian.com. And then my book, Think Like a Rocket Scientist, is available wherever books are sold. I do have a special offer for your audience, Austin. If they head over to rocketsciencebook.com forward slash success, I have a series of, I think it's 12 bite-sized, really quick hit, three-minute videos that share practical, actionable insights from the book that people can implement right away. And you can find all of those videos at rocketsciencebook.com forward slash success. And you'll see instructions on there once you order the book and forward it to a specific email address. I'll share those videos with you. You are too kind. Well, thank you so much for your time today. It's been a fascinating conversation. I would highly recommend anyone listening to go check out the book. Again, it's Think Like a Rocket Scientist, simple strategies you can use to make giant leaps in work and life. Ozan, thanks so much for the time today and best of luck in the future. Thank you so much, Austin. It was my pleasure. Thank you, everyone, again, for listening. We're glad you spent some time with us here on The Science of Success. As a reminder, if you haven't already, head to our website and sign up for our email newsletter, www.successpodcast.com. You'll get a ton of free goodies, including our free guide to remembering anything when you sign up. You'll also get access to our newsletter and our interviews as soon as they go live and all of the great content here on The Science of Success. If you're on the go, don't forget to text SMARTER, that's S-M-A-R-T-E-R, to 44222 to get signed up today. We thank you for spending this time with us, and we'll see you back here next week on The Science of Success. Thank you so much for listening to The Science of Success. We created this show to help you, our listeners, master evidence-based growth. I love hearing from listeners. If you want to reach out, share your story, or just say hi, shoot me an email. My email is matt at successpodcast.com. That's M-A-T-T at successpodcast.com. I'd love to hear from you, and I read and respond to every single listener email. I'm going to give you three reasons why you should sign up for our email list today by going to successpodcast.com, signing up right on the homepage. There's some incredible stuff that's only available to those on the email list, so be sure to sign up, including an exclusive curated weekly email from us called Mindset Monday, which is short, simple, filled with articles, stories, things that we found interesting and fascinating in the world of evidence-based growth in the last week. Next, you're getting an exclusive chance to shape the show, including voting on guests, submitting your own personal questions that we'll ask guests on air, and much more. Lastly, you're going to get a free guide we created based on listener demand, our most popular guide, which is called How to Organize and Remember Everything. You can get it completely for free, along with another surprise bonus guide by signing up and joining the email list today. Again, you can do that at successpodcast.com, sign up right at the homepage, or if you're on the go, just text the word SMARTER, S-M-A-R-T-E-R, to the number 44222. Remember, the greatest compliment you can give us is a referral to a friend, either live or online. If you enjoyed this episode, please leave us an awesome review and subscribe on iTunes because that helps boost the algorithm that helps us move up the iTunes rankings and helps more people discover the science of success. Don't forget, if you want to get all the incredible information we talk about in the show, links, transcripts, everything we discuss, and much more, be sure to check out our show notes. You can get those at successpodcast.com. Just hit the show notes button right at the top. Thanks again, and we'll see you on the next episode of The Science of Success. <laughs>